Let's pray together and just ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that it is a life-giving word, that it is absolute truth that we can depend on, that we can count on, that it never changes. God, that we, we can look to your word to find and discover who you are in greater ways, that we can see the promises that you have for your children, for your people. And also, Lord, we can see the cautions, the warnings that you give us to keep us on that track that we might truly be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We pray that it would speak life to each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title of my message is kind of simple, and hopefully we all believe it. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. That's the good news, and here's the bad news. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Depending on how and which side of that you're looking from, it can be, or should be, real scary, and it can be so exciting and filled with promises. God keeps his word. And his word doesn't change with the winds. It's so nice in a world that's just so filled with turmoil that there is something that is absolutely foundationally solid, the Word of God. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in our nation, in our homes, in our families, around the world, God's Word doesn't change. It's reliable. How many of you have said something like this? How in the world did I get in this situation? How in the world did I find myself in this mess? It's like we wake up one day and it's like, gee, what did we do wrong? Well, the reality is it started probably a long time ago. We can say something like that. How did I find myself in this mess? In the area of our finances? And when we say it in the area of finances, boy, it's something that started probably a long time ago. A lot of bad choices. You know, self-gratification, short-term thinking, uh, unfaithfulness to, to what God has given us. It can happen in relationships. How did we get to this place in relationships with individuals? Spouses, children, friends, neighbors. And again... It didn't just happen on that one day. It, it, it could be our anger issues in our life. It could be neglecting a relationship. It could go on and on and on and on. We can find ourselves in legal situations where we say, how did we get here? Once again, choices. Sometimes made long ago. And for sure we can say that spiritually if we do an inventory of our spiritual life. How did I get here? How come God seems so distant? How come I can't hear his voice and I can't believe he can't, can hear mine? We've lost our self-discipline. We have not been doing what God asks us to do in the areas of our spiritual discipline. Sadly, a lot of us have been to those places. Some of us are probably in that place even right now in some area of our life. And what's even more sad is we oftentimes find ourselves back in that same situation 
after we've gotten out of it at one time. It's almost as if we don't learn from our mistakes. I'm sure that doesn't apply to anybody in here, but it's been known to happen. I can go and say, huh, I'm here again? How can I be so foolish? Or in my case, how can I be so stupid? I know better. And here I am again. You know, when... When an airplane has an incident, where an airplane crashes, whatever, whatever happens to an airplane, they, they mount this huge investigation. They want to find out what happened. What caused the incident? What caused the accident? What caused the crash? And it's reported by people sometimes involved in debriefing these flight incidents that this phrase is often said, The mishap has already occurred. The aircraft is now simply proceeding to the crash site. In other words, something has happened way before. Something the pilot did or did not do. Something the the crew, the air crew did or did not do. And as they're doing the investigation, they discover all these things. And they look at what has already happened and said, The mishap has already occurred. The plane is just looking for a place to crash. As a good metaphor for what we see in the story this week, in chapter 14 of Israel. I'm going to read a little bit from the story in chapter 14. It says this, I'm reading from page 188, if you happen to have your books with you. God is speaking. Solomon has just built the temple, and here's what he says. I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if people who are called my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did, and do all that I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne throne, as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. God keeps his word, the promise, but it continues with the warning. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and I will reject this temple that I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all the people's. This temple will become a heap of rubble, and all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. God spoke to Solomon clearly. He made these amazing promises that if you do as your father David did, 
as you obey my commands and you worship only me, there will always be an ancestor on the throne and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless this nation. And then he says, but if you don't. Just turning a page or two in this, the book, the story on page 191, it says this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Sidonians and Hittites. They were from the nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtorah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as his father David had. Paraphrasing the statement in regard to the airplane, The sin had already happened. Israel was already headed to the crash site. Solomon had these words spoken to him by God, these amazing promises, with this clear warning, and yet he turned away. We talked about that in much more detail last week. Today I want to just start with reminding us of the calling of God for the nation of Israel. And we're going to look at this slide, and then, then I'm going to take a little rabbit trail and look at some scriptures in the New Testament that apply to you and me. Remember, in the story, God's upper story is his plan to bring people back into relationship with him. The plan doesn't change. He keeps his word. It doesn't matter what man's in control. God's plan stays the same in the upper story. In the lower story, anything can happen, and we can lose sight of God's plan. But here's what he had called the nation of Israel to. It said, Israel is called to be a holy nation. Of all the nations on the earth, of all the people on the earth, he spoke to Abraham. Why? Because he chose to. And he declared, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. You're going to be a holy nation. Why? To represent me rightly to the world. They'll see this holy nation, and they'll see their holy God. It says, you will be a living testimony of the abundant life available to all who live under God's government. It was designed to to be a theocracy. God was their king. And in spite of their desire for human kings, his plans never changed to draw his people to himself. If you do what I say, kings, as kings and leaders of my nation, I will bless. And you will experience the abundant life available to those who know me. Abraham's nation was called to be a blessing to all of mankind. It says you will bless the nations if, of course, you follow me. And then he says, as God's presence dwelt in the midst, remember he said, build the temple. They had the tabernacle all through their travels in the desert. 
He says, as you build this temple and the tabernacle, I will dwell in the midst of you. And it says, you are to be transformed into a holy people and be the beacon of light to all the Gentile nations around. This is his call for Israel. This is his his upper story. This was his plan for his people. That they would be transformed and be a light that would draw people to Yahweh, to God. And God's purposes, as I said, didn't change. It didn't change. It didn't matter who was the king. It didn't matter who was the judge. It didn't matter. His purpose stayed the same. It didn't matter whether it was a good leader. It didn't matter it was an evil leader. His purpose didn't change. How he moved definitely changed, depending upon the leader, but the purpose was always the same. And it's interesting that God knew there was going to be kings, and anticipating the kings, the coming kings, in Moses' law, he prescribed limitations and responsibilities within which these kings were supposed to rule. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 17, this is so clear. He's writing this and he says in the law, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, meaning an earthly king, God knew there was going to be earthly kings. God knew the people were going to want to be like the other people. And he would give them a king, but he said, here's the deal. When he sits on the throne, here's what's supposed to happen. He shall write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of all Israel. He knew there was going to be earthly kings, and here's what he said. When the king gets set on the throne, first thing he should do is get a copy of the law. It wasn't like you and me where Bibles were everywhere. They had to write out, they had to transcribe a copy of the law in the presence of the Levitical priests overseeing this, and he was to read it every day. So he would stay on track. So the blessings of God could be poured out upon them. And so that they would be this people that he called them to be. A holy people. A light to the world. Manifesting the blessings of God. Drawing the world to Jesus. Drawing the world to Yahweh. The law made two things, crystal clear, no excuses. First was the Israelites' occupancy of the promised land was dependent upon their obedience to the law. God gave them the land. God can remove them from the land. But he promised he never would if they obeyed him. And the second thing the law made crystal clear, that he would not tolerate the worship of other gods. He would not tolerate it. Many, many reasons. But if you think of his upper story, one that should be very clear to all of us would be, he wanted his people to live in such a way that the world around them would see the effect and the impact of the one true God. And if you're worshiping other gods, that can't happen. 
This period that we're looking at in chapter 14 of the story covers about 60 years in the history of Israel. And it teaches Israel, or taught Israel, and it should teach us a lesson. First of all, that God is really patient. Aren't you glad God's patient? He was patient with Israel. He's patient with us. But it also teaches us very clearly that God keeps his word. Just like he did for Israel, he still keeps his word today. Israel's calling was part of God's upper story plan. I want to go back to that slide showing us and reviewing Israel's calling. And I just want to read you some scriptures. They're all from the New Testament. And they're all about you and me as God's chosen people called by him. And as you look at that, you'll see God's upper plan for Israel. That's his upper story. And now I want to read these scriptures to you, and I'm just going to go through them. 1 Peter 2, 9, if you want to write these down. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not... You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I have been called out to be a holy people, a holy nation. Sounds familiar. John 10.10, a verse very important to us in this church. It's kind of our mission statement. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He had told Israel, I've called you out that I can bless you in your obedience. I will give you an abundant life so that all the world around can see that your God is the one true God. He has called you and I out. He declares that he has bought us with the price of his son Jesus that we might have an abundant life. A life filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A life that people look at and say, wow, If that's the source, if God is the source of the life they live, I want that God, and I want that life. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are now being transformed into the same image from glory and glory to glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Holy Spirit. God's people were to be transformed. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. A continuous transformation taking place in our lives. We now have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us. We have such a leg up on ancient Israel. The work was accomplished through Christ that hadn't been accomplished yet for Israel. It should be so much easier for us than it was ancient Israel. And yet, we make so many mistakes. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. 
Just as God said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He lived in a tabernacle. He lived in the temple. Yet now with us, he says, I'm going to live in them. I'm going to walk with them. They're my people. God's upper plan, you can see it's there. It was being looked at and pointed to all the way through the Old Testament. And you and I are the recipients of Christ and his work. These things, all of these things I'm reading from these scriptures, positionally are ours in Christ already. If we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, these statements are true about us. Now, how we respond can definitely impact and affect the way they manifest through us. But nonetheless, they are about me and about you because of what Christ did. You and I would fail miserably at these. We couldn't possibly be any of these things in our own flesh. Just as Israel was doomed to fail over and over again. Matthew five fourteen. Remember, they were supposed to be that shining light on a hill. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But the lampstand, on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Then he says in verse 16, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to let our light shine. We are to be that light in a dark world so that God gets the glory. That's the purpose. The world sees light in the darkness and they're drawn to the light like mosquitoes to that lamp. They're just drawn. They can't resist it. That's who we are supposed to be. That's what God sent His Son to die on a cross for so that we could be. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. Praise God. He doesn't change. His promises are for us. They are for today. There's some cautions and warnings in the New Testament that are for us also. He wants us to be that, that, that light that draws the world to him. That he receives all the glory. He wants to be in intimate relationship with us. That's why there's the commands. That's why there's the cautions. To keep us in a place where we are receiving and living and walking in the abundant blessings of God. They're available to us. We're his children. We're joint heirs with Christ. They're there for us. He wants to see them in us manifesting so the world sees him. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He gave Israel the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the other written law that they had. It was to be their guide. Remember the king? He was supposed to get first thing. Let's make a copy so I can get it burnt in my my brain. I need to know it. I need to hear it. In the New Testament, as believers... It says, the law is written on our heart. We don't need tablets of stone. It's written in our mind. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the living God living in us. 
the holy God living in us. These laws are written in our hearts, not in our mind. And on our mind. And, and the Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And in Revelation 22, 12, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. Has nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing to do with it. We're already saved. We're already His children. He says, but how you live and, and how you act and how you represent me will earn rewards in heaven. Great blessings in heaven. Isn't it amazing when you look through those scriptures how similar it is to God's upper story with Israel? All that He wanted to do with them, He has all, already done through Christ in us. Boy, I'm glad I'm living today and not back then. It's there for us through Christ. Okay, off my long rabbit trail. Back to the story. Israel, proceeding to the crash site. Remember how Solomon started, we talked about last week? God says, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom and God goes, wow, I am pleased with that request. And Solomon started his reign in obedience and blessings of God were all over him. Everything he did was right. But all of a sudden, cracks started to show in the foundation. Solomon was abusing the law. We see in reading the story, he had evidently got carried away with his ambitious building program and decided to tax the living tar out of his people. And not only that, he made slave labor out of those people. We saw and remember that he took a whole bunch of women to be his wife. And many of them were foreign women from the lands that they were forbidden to intermarry with. Things were going wrong in the lower story. <coughs> the cracks, the sin. Solomon has a son and it's time for his son to become king. His son's name is Rehoboam. His son, when he He's going to become king. First, he does something pretty wise. He, he goes to Solomon's counselors and said, what should I do? The people are rising up in rebellion. And the old counselors say, be a servant to your people. Lower the taxes. Get rid of the slave labor. <coughs> Become a servant to your people, and they will serve you all your life. Good advice. He decided to go to get to some of his young peers and say, here's the deal. You see this rebellion brewing. What would you suggest I do? And his yes men said, raise the taxes and work them harder and you'll be greater than your father ever was. He took their advice. The rebellion continues. The nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's a man named Jeroboam who is not of the kingly line. He was a man of one of those ten tribes that was rebelling. As a matter of fact, he was the leader of the group of rebels. And he ultimately becomes king over ten tribes of Israel. There's a division of the kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel. 
the ten tribes, whose king is now Jeroboam, who was not of the kingly line at all. Matter of fact, he would have just been a servant of King Solomon. And then there's the nation of Judah, which had kind of absorbed Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So now we have two tribes, a nation divided against itself. When you look at this, these two nations, whether it's Rehoboam or Jeroboam, they are as evil, as immoral, and into idolatry to the same degree that the Canaanites were, the people that God drove out of the land. They were that evil. The lower story is a mess, is what it is. And from a natural perspective, it would seem normal. We've got two kings, we've got two kingdoms, and they're massing their troops at the border, and they're ready to go to war. Why wouldn't they be? This is how man acts, left to their own devices. And as they're massed at the border, getting ready to attack, God intervenes. And we get a snapshot of whatever's going on in the lower story and whatever we think is going on in the lower story, we need to always remember God is in control. He's in control. So the armies are massed against one another, brothers against brothers, Jews. They're all Israelites, but the kingdom is divided against itself. And they're ready to go to war, and God speaks to a prophet, and he says, go to the king and tell him these words. And it says in 1 Kings 12, 24, thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every single man of you to your house, for this thing has come from me. This mess in the lower story doesn't matter whether the kings are good kings or the kings are evil kings. God's in control. And he's saying, this mess is from me. What's he thinking? Well, I don't know the details, but I know his master plan. Whatever he is thinking, whatever this is happening, it's to bring the people back into a place of relationship with him so that they can demonstrate rightly to the world who God really is. And right now, what they're doing is not demonstrating to the world who God really is. Whatever appeared to be a mess in the lower story is really God in control in the upper story. As a matter of fact, God had spoken what was taking place to Solomon exactly. Look at these words in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting at verse 11. God speaks to Solomon. He says, The Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, in other words, all his evil, all his sin, He says, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I, God, will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. That might be Jeroboam. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. That would be Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, 
and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God had made some promises to David, and he was going to be true to his word. But he had told Solomon exactly what is going to happen, and now we see it taking place in chapter 14 of the story. The kingdom is divided against itself. It was already divided against God. The kingdom is collapsing. The plane is crashing. But it started way back with Solomon and his sin. And it's now playing out in the next generation. And it's going to continue on for many, many, many years. There's going to be different kings. Every now and then a good one pops up for a little while. And then we get another one more evil than the others. And this thing is unfolding in the lower story, but all of it's taking place because God's upper story plan will come to pass one way or another. God had been totally patient with Israel. He had been absolutely perfect in doing His part, blessing them, expanding the territory. Whatever they did brought blessing upon them. Israel is the one that failed to do their part. They didn't obey. Solomon had distorted the worship of God to such a degree that the people, the surrounding nations, would not give acknowledgement and glory to the true God, Yahweh. Think about it. Solomon is being blessed. His kingdom is expanding. Wealth and riches and wisdom all given to him to bring glory and honor to God so that the nations would see what's happening and say, wow, theirs is the one true God. Oh yeah, over here Solomon is worshiping Ashtoreth. Over here he's worshiping Moloch. I mean, they sacrifice kids to that God. And now the people are looking at the kingdom and saying, they're blessed, but gee, which God is blessing them? Solomon had started to distort the worship of God to such a degree that God could not get the glory. And God will not put up with that forever. The sin had already been committed. Israel's plane was looking for a place to crash. We need to be aware in our own lives. We do not want our lives to be like that. We need to be guarding our hearts so sin isn't starting to eat away at the foundations. Our salvation is secure, but oh, can we suffer as God draws us back to Himself. Israel was completely distorting God's upper plan. His plan was to reveal His power, His presence for His people. His plan to draw His people back to Himself. In the, in the lower story, we see a nation divided against itself. We need to be really watchful in our own lives, in our homes, in the church, in the nation. We should be doing everything we can do to make sure we don't become a nation divided against itself. We don't become a family divided against itself. We don't become a church divided against itself. It will fail. 
It will falter. It will eventually collapse. A house divided against God will not stand. We see this in the upper story. We are called to love God above all else and to align our lives according to His will. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus was, well, they were trying to stump Him. And they said, what are the greatest commandments? And He says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those laws are written on our heart. Those are the laws that we are to live by. We're just to love God and align our life with Him. Why? Well, yeah, it brings great blessing into our life, but we still live in a fallen world. There are going to be challenges. The real reason is that we are revealing the one true God to the world around us. That's what what it's all about. That's our purpose. You know, God created you and me to bring glory and honor to Him. And he's been working since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden to bring us back to a place that Jesus Christ made possible through his death and resurrection and has been offered to us. We are those called out ones. We are the one that he's declared to be that holy nation to represent him to the world. When we live this way, we will experience the full blessings of God. Again, we redefine blessings in ways that our selfish nature wants to define it. He wants to bless us, the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifesting in our lives, fully, completely. And he wants to assure that everything works out for the good in our life. You know, in last scripture, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who walk according to His purpose. We oftentimes throw that verse around, or at least we throw part of that verse around. All things work for good, yes, to those who love God and live according to His purposes. What is the good that all things work for? Well, there's probably more than this, but what seems really, really clear as we're going through this study in the story, all things work for good, the good, drawing us back to God so that we can reveal God to the world. I want to do something a little different. I want to just invite you to stand with me if you're able. And we're going to pray. And what I'd like you to do is repeat the prayer after me. But what I would like you to do is to consider the words that I'm speaking. Because I don't want you to just pray the prayer for the sake of praying the prayer. But what we're going to do here is we're going to ask God and devote ourselves to Him. So it's going to be a brief prayer. But I just ask you to repeat this after me if you're in agreement with what I'm praying. We need to remember, even as we celebrated communion this morning, that Jesus was our provision. He died for us. He went all in. Are we all in? Are you fully devoted to Jesus? Do you want to be? Let's pray. 
Repeat these words after me if you would like. Lord, thank you for your wonderful provision over my life. Over my life. Today I stand fully devoted to you. I don't want to have division in my lower story. Or with you in your upper story. Give me the strength to make good on this promise. As we live our lives fully devoted to Him, as we look at the commandments that He gave in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself, you cannot help but to bring Him glory. And the blessings will fill our lives. God, I pray over each one of us here, God, that you would guard our hearts, watch over us this week, protect us. God, I pray that you would just hear the cries of your people as they cry out to you for your mercy, for your grace, for the healings of body, soul, and spirit. God, that we would be those children that love you more than anything else. And that our lives would reflect who you are, even as you live in us by your Holy Spirit. I pray you would bless the food, those that are going to be eating here, and continue to bless our rehearsals, God, and prepare the musical, that the message of Easter would go out clearly in that musical. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.